Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode uh, at the Diplomatic History Channel at New Books Network. I'm your host, Grant Golub. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, Today, my guest is Rasmus Sondergaard, who is the author of Reagan, Congress, and Human Rights, Contesting Morality in U.S. Foreign Policy, which was published with Cambridge University Press in May uh, 2020. Um, Rasmus is a senior researcher um, in foreign policy and diplomacy at the Danish Institute for International Studies, um, where he specializes in the role of human rights and democracy promotion in American foreign relations and tensions between liberal values and national security interests. He's also interested in issues of diplomacy, global order, international organizations, and transatlantic relations. So Rasmus, it's great to have you on the uh, on the program today. Thank you, great. Uh, thank you, Grant. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yes, it is great uh, for you to be here. Um, so I think it's a really great place for us to, uh, to start with just introducing our listeners uh, to the book, um, what its core arguments are, and, and what you were trying to accomplish um, with writing this monograph. Absolutely. Uh, as you were hinting, hinting uh, with presenting the title, right, the book traces the role of human rights concerns in American foreign policy in the Reagan era. And I focus on the struggle among the Reagan administration and individual members of Congress. Um, so sort of one of the sort of the first arguments that I make in the book is that pressure from individual members of Congress led the Reagan administration to reconsider its initial intention to downgrade the role of human rights in American foreign policy to instead move to a policy of reform where human rights was co-opted into a pre-existing sort of conservative anti-communist human rights uh, agenda. Uh, And the sort of human rights then was linked to selective democracy promotion, but first and foremost, anti-communism. Uh, and I argue that this sort of this move from rejection to reform on behalf of the Reagan administration really changed the conversation uh, in American foreign policy circles from 
whether human rights concerns should play a role in American foreign relations at all to what role they should play, how they should play a role. And then finally, I argue that the struggle between the Reagan administration and members of Congress over the appropriate role of human rights in American foreign relations um, impacted human rights policy beyond the Cold War era in at least two important ways. First, uh, it helped secure human rights as the moral language. This is an important point. Uh, it was by no means guaranteed uh, by 1981 when Reagan entered the White House that human rights would remain such a prominent fixture of expressing uh, a language for expressing morality. And the second is that I argue that although human rights was uh, sort of maintained as this key moral language, um, the debates in the 80s uh, between Congress and the Reagan administration also moved the U.S. further away from a consensus on the content of U.S. human rights U.S. human rights policy. So you could say human rights became omnipresent in the debate, but still it remained heavily politicized. And I mean, finally, you could say in the broader scope, just to let me point out that, I mean, I guess like as many other historians of human rights have pointed out, uh, I think the, the, the narrative, the story that I tell here sort of highlights how human rights is fundamentally a political language that policymakers invoke to claim moral authority for their sort of existing political agendas. So I, I sort of really sort of try, I want to like emphasize the flexibility and the ambiguity of the concept and how it's easy to sort of adapt it to diverse political causes. That's the sort of broader implication of it. Right. And I, I mean, I, I, as you're sort of pointing out, I think, I think that's one of the most interesting takeaways from the, from the entire book is um, not only with human rights, but with all sorts of things more generally, how they can easily be co-opted by, you know, various, uh, you know, political interest groups or political forces, um, ideological groups to, to sort of meet their own um, political ends. And we'll definitely be sort of digging into that more later in the conversation. But before we get to that, um, I, will, I was wondering if you could talk to us about how the Reagan administration, when it enters office in January 1981, um, as uh, almost all of our listeners will be aware, uh, Reagan defeats the incumbent Jimmy Carter in a massive landslide in the 1980 election, rides a sort of conservative wave in American politics um, into the White House with an overwhelming majority. The Republicans recapture the Senate for the first time in a quarter century, make um, pretty sizable gains in the House of Representatives. What is Reagan's initial conception, um, both him as the man, if he has one, and the administration more broadly? What is their initial conception of human rights and and the role it should play in American foreign policy? How are they thinking about these issues? Well, essentially, uh, the idea, the thinking is that human rights is no good as a foreign policy concern. And that's because to Reagan and his sort of core team, not surprisingly, when uh, the election takes place in 1980, human rights is very closely connected or identified with Carter's foreign policy, right? So, I mean, Jimmy Carter famously is known as sort of a human rights president. He introduced a human rights-based foreign policy where human rights was primarily connected to criticism of American allies with oppressive uh, human rights records, but also to this sort of policy of non-intervention that Carter wanted to sort of reset the clock with American relations with Global South countries and try and move beyond the sort of Cold War divide where the U.S. would intervene uh, in various countries uh, 
because of Cold War uh, strategic interests, and he wanted to sort of move beyond that and respect the, the national sovereignty to a great extent of these countries, but then at the same time also critique American allies for their human rights violations. So, so that's the conception of human rights that was dominant uh, at the time when Reagan uh, enters the White House, and that's what they're moving against. So they have this idea that human rights, as practiced by Carter, was deeply flawed. It was ideologically leftist, and and it sort of undermined fundamental U.S. national security interests. And so it was a campaign promise for the Reagan uh, team to sort of try and end this human rights policy. That was the initial conception. I mean, I I quote in my book as well from the first National Security Council meeting in February 81, where Reagan says quite sort of explicitly that, you know, we have to change uh, the attitude of our diplomatic course so that we don't bring down governments in the name of human rights. We don't throw out our friends just because they can't pass the saliva test on human rights. So there's this clear idea that, like, human rights concerns should not be um, you could say, um, a standard on which the U.S. evaluates its relationship with its allies or with its partners. You should not um, criticize your allies for their human rights violations. And this all, of course, is framed by Reagan's overall approach to the Cold War and his strong anti-communism and this notion that fighting communism, not just in the Soviet Union, but across the globe uh, is sort of the overarching uh, objective of U.S. foreign policy. And in that concept, in that context, uh, human rights really doesn't play a role for Reagan initially. And and that's really interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people who are going to be sort of familiar with the highlights of uh, Reagan's foreign policy, Reagan's crusade against uh, the Soviet Union and Soviet-style communism you would probably remember a lot of his iconic speeches, um, for example, the Evil Empire speech, um, which happens in, in Feb- uh, 1983, um, in which he's invoking um, these sort of themes and concerns in trying to attack the Soviet Union as an illegitimate um, international actor. And so it's interesting to sort of see uh, that shift, um, but sort of now looking to the other side of it, the congressional side, which you spend uh, you know quite a lot of time talking about in the book um, very persuasively, where where does Congress and people outside the executive branch fit into this? Um, you know you talk about the role of foreign policy entrepreneurs. Um, why is human rights policy and human rights concerns become uh, a, a quite large ones for um, members of Congress? And um, why why did they become so obsessed with this issue? Right. To answer that, I think we have to maybe jump back a few years before Reagan enters office, because it really is in the 1970s that Congress as an institution, but also individual members of Congress uh, sort of rediscover human rights and realizes that human rights as a concept is a way for them as an institution to try and constrain the power of the executive branch, uh, but also for individuals as a way for them to assert themselves uh, as sort of moral actors in American foreign relations. And so what happens in the 70s uh, is that individual members of Congress pick up on human rights, uh, partly sort of informed and shaped by the sort of emerging human rights NGO community with amnesty, et cetera. Uh, And they 
introduce legislation that ties human rights concerns to American foreign aid and trade relations, etc. So human rights becomes a feature in American bilateral policy with a number of countries. And they set up institutions as well, uh, like they mandate the establishment of the Human Rights Bureau and State Department and the annual human rights reports that the executive branch is mandated to submit to Congress for review. So they introduce human rights concerns as a way for Congress as an institution to uh, rein in the executive branch. And this is, of course, initially in the years of, uh, of Richard Nixon, uh, but it also con- as a, uh, persists into the, um, into the Reagan era and human rights there becomes a language for expressing morality, but also very sort of tangibly, uh, concretely, a, um, a measure for Congress to sort of try and constrain uh, executive branch power in foreign relations. And who are some of the specific members of Congress who are really pressing um, human rights issues um, in sort of contesting the Reagan administration foreign policy? And I was wondering if you could speak to about some of their individual motivations for uh, for doing so. Absolutely. I mean, it's a key, it's a key sort of, uh, it's a key point of my book, really, to not speak of Congress as an entity, as I just did, right? So in the book, I try to disaggregate Congress and point to the fact that it consists of individual people, individual members of Congress, right, who have their independent agendas and often very personal uh, reasons for embracing human rights. And for that reason as well, the book is based on not just uh, research and sort of, uh, you know, the usual sort of the National Archives and the the presidential libraries, but also on uh, numerous private collections of individual members of Congress to try and sort of understand their personal motivations, right? And it can be very sort of, you know, religious, ideological, very very personal reasons. Uh, And in terms of challenging the Reagan administration, it was quite different individuals picking up human rights language to challenge the Reagan administration on different issues. Uh, And we can go into the case studies later, for instance, uh, issues like on on South Africa or Nicaragua, where individual members of Congress play a particular role. But in terms of why uh, individuals pick up human rights um, and the individuals that sort of really embraced human rights, those two sort of good examples that I discuss in my chapter on the Congressional Human Rights Caucus, which is this group of congressmen coming together, established in 83, uh, trying to expand congressional attention to human rights and also forge sort of a minimalist bipartisan consensus. And there, the, the two co-founders are interesting in terms of why people pick up human rights. So one of them is a Democrat from California, Tom Lantis. He's the, uh, he was the only uh, Holocaust survivor to serve in the U.S. Congress. And so he had a very personal experience uh, of uh, the Holocaust and growing up in Europe at that very turbulent time that led him to have great concern for religious minorities uh, and persecuted individuals. And so that sort of led him to embrace human rights, whereas his... Um, his co-chair uh, in this Congressional Human Rights Caucus, uh, John Porter, who's a Republican from Illinois, he picked up human rights for quite different reasons. He went on a trip to the Soviet Union in 82, and there him and his wife and the delegation he was part of, the congressional delegation, experienced some harassment in the airport and sort of got a, a 
a, a taste of what it feels like to live in a totalitarian society. They met with um, Soviet Jews as well, and they sort of got a very sort of firsthand, you could say, experience as well that led them to sort of think, wow, we need to really do something to help these people. Um, also, again, the local constituents can be a driving force. Uh, for John Porter, he had um, a number of uh, members from the Baha'i community uh, in his uh district uh, who impressed upon him the sort of struggle of that religious minority in various places in the Middle East that also drove him to look at human rights concerns. So you'll see that these individuals come to human rights often for very different reasons, but come together in using human rights as a language to address these issues and try to help people uh, across the globe in various different positions. Um, as you were talking, I was thought of sort of two things. Um, that really sort of interplay with congressional interest in, in these issues. One is, well, actually, I'll, I'll put that aside for now because it's going to go into a whole different set of issues. But I was wondering if you could sort of speak a little bit about the role. I know this isn't a huge part of your book, but the role of Vietnamese refugees in human rights concerns, especially as those, you know, eventually um, sort of translate into sort of broader uh, anti-communist um, thrusts um, that are sort of uh, regaining fervor um, in the 1980s with um, Reagan, um, at least rhetorically intensifying the Cold War, um, especially because, you know, you have a lot of Vietnamese refugees uh, from the former South Vietnam uh, coming to live in the United States. And a lot of them are going to be settling in Southern California and in places like Orange County and, and the greater Los Angeles area. Are they are are the refugees as a constituency starting to play a larger role um, in human rights concerns, and, and does that help sort of intensify congressional interest and pressure on the Reagan administration to make human rights a, a larger plank in their foreign policy? Yeah, you're right to point out it's not a a, a sort of main part of my book, but I yeah for for Vietnamese uh, refugees specifically, I think I would point people to Amanda Demmer's book. Uh, on Saigon's and uh, fall after Saigon. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, they do play a role uh, in the 1980s, uh, other refugees as well, and um, dissidents, really. Uh, so in, in my book, it's more a Jews uh, escaping from the Soviet Union, right? I have a chapter on, on, on Soviet Jews and, and the way that uh, Congress and the Reagan administration collaborates on US human rights policy towards the Soviet Union and try and... and, and, and and get as many uh, Soviet Jews out of the country as possible. And there, um, yes, I mean, American Jews and Soviet Americans, you could say anyone who sort of left the Eastern Bloc, uh, not just Jews, but also other uh, minorities, they do play a role uh, in mobilizing. Um, uh, sort of, you see these massive demonstrations, of course, across the US in the 80s to, to sort of try and and, and let uh, Soviets, uh, Soviet Jews migrate both to Israel and to the United States. And in, in 1987, when Gorbachev comes to, to Reagan uh, in, in Washington for the, the summit in 87, there's a huge demonstration as well uh, for Soviet Jews. Uh, so, so certainly um, refugees and dissidents uh, play a role. Uh, and you also see that members of Congress who share identity with some of these refugees, like so, like Jewish members of Congress are, are very active on, on the issues of Soviet Jews. And uh, I have my other chapter on 
on South Africa, you see that uh, African-American members of Congress are very involved uh, in, in combating uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa and so forth. So, so certainly uh, refugees and dissidents and so we could say ethnic uh, groups in the United States play a big role as well. Going to the the other question I had, which I think talk, you know, sort of talking about Soviet Jewry uh, as as one of your case studies, um, which we can talk about more in detail later. But sort of, go, but before we do that, kind of goes into my other question, which was, you know, on, on sort of on the Repu- not Republican, but sort of on the on the neoconservative side. I mean, during you know, going back to the Richard Nixon presidency for a moment, um, you had uh, Henry Scoop Jackson, um, you know, Democratic senator from Washington, considered one of the um, you know godfathers of the of the neoconservative foreign policy movement uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, he raising a lot of human rights concerns and sort of trying to obstruct or, or slow down uh, Nixon and Kissinger's detente process with the Soviet Union. Um, and, and specifically, he's often raising the plight of Soviet Jews trying to sort of emigrate from the Soviet Union to uh, to, to other places around the world, normally Israel, but of course, the United States um, as well. And so I was wondering, though, not about um, Scoop Jackson specifically, but a lot of his key um, protégés um, are going to enter the Reagan administration, uh, the neoconservative turn in foreign policy. Um, is um, going to be intersecting with the Reagan revolution uh, in a lot of ways. And so I was wondering how how neoconservatives are conceptualizing human rights concerns um, in foreign policy and, and sort of what what's the larger role they're playing um, in formulating Reagan's foreign policy um, in this period? Well, the neoconservatives play a massive role in, in, in shaping Reagan's approach to human rights. And maybe this can take us back to uh, when we talked about Reagan's initial uh, attempt to, to do downgrade and reject human rights concerns. Because what happens is, of course, that I argue that pressure from Congress and the human rights community led the administration to revise its position and incorporate human rights. And when that happens uh, in the summer of 81, I argue, the Senate hearing where the Senate Foreign Relations Committee rejects uh, Ernest Lefevre, uh, Reagan's uh, nominee to head the Human Rights Bureau at the State Department. After that, the administration sort of regroups and sort of realizes that it needs to have a more proactive approach to human rights to uh, you could say, uh, yeah, sort of address congressional concerns and sort of to make sure that congressional uh, pressure for human rights doesn't get to derail the foreign policy overall. When that happens, uh, what Reagan instead, he turns to uh, Elliot Abrams, uh, who is, or you could say, one of the sort of protégés of the sort of Scoop Jackson and the Scoop Jackson Democrats, the neoconservatives uh, of the 70s. And Elliot Abrams then becomes the head of the Human Rights Bureau. And I spend a fair amount of time on him in the book because he, as a neoconservative, along with Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, Reagan's UN ambassador, and, and a few others, play quite important roles. Uh, it's really Abrams, uh, to some extent, along with uh, George Schultz, once he comes in as, uh, as Reagan's second secretary of state, but especially Abrams. It's really him who sort of shapes the sort of so-called conservative human rights policy, as he himself names it, calls it. And that is really shaped by the Kirkpatrick doctrine, this sort of idea that there are authoritarian and totalitarian regimes out there 
and the totalitarian ones, you know, the communist regimes, they are sort of stable and fixed. And once a state goes communist, you can't do much about it, as opposed to the authoritarian regimes, which tend to be the American allies around the world that are certainly no, not democratic. Those have at least the potential to later democratize. And so that logic informs the administration's approach to human rights. So number one becomes prevent a communist takeover. Communism is viewed as the sort of ultimate human rights violation. And essentially, a, a sort of once you lose a country to communism, all hope is lost for human rights. That's the sort of starting point. So opposing communism in all shapes and forms becomes the first rule, basically, of the Reagan administration's human rights policy. And then after that, the idea is, of course, that you could nudge some of those authoritarian regimes towards greater respect for human rights and democracy, but always very carefully and always with a deep concern for what might happen if you push them too far and they might turn to to, to communist uh, insurgent groups, for instance. So, so that's sort of that logic of the Kirkpatrick doctrine, uh, that sort of neoconservative thinking really uh, shapes the administration's approach to human rights. And then Another thing, I guess, is the definition of human rights. And I don't know if it's necessarily the neocons as much as it's the sort of conservative, Republican, center-right approach in general. But that is sort of a very narrow conception of what what constitutes human rights, Uh, essentially civil and political rights, uh, democracy, elections, and the sort of basic civic rights but not the broader spectrum of economic, social, cultural rights as we see in the international uh, governance. Uh, those are treated as sort of, you could say, mere aspirations, something that's you know good to have, uh, but is not essential. And you can never justify those rights at expense of the others. That becomes the sort of the logic here. So, so in that sense, the neocons and the conservatives in the administration they take a very narrow definition of human rights and merges it with democracy promotion and sort of ties human rights very narrowly to democracy and, and casts aside the sort of broader spectrum of human rights. Going back to, to Elliot, Elliot Abrams, um, who's a really interesting figure, and, and for those who are, are hearing that name and thinking, um, you know, that, that sounds familiar. Well, you would be right because he's sort of resurged um, during the during the Trump administration um, and was sort of you know floating around foreign policy conversations um, uh, there I mean originally uh, he Rex Tillerson Trump's first Secretary of State right wanted Elliot Abrams to be his deputy uh, and Trump refused to sign off on that because Elliot Abrams had been a prominent um, well, not never Trumper because he obviously winds up working in the administration, but he he was a, a vocal Republican critic of the of the Trump presidential campaign, especially Trump's use on foreign policy. So that um, appointment is blocked, but he does wind up joining the Trump administration as the special representative for Trump's amazing policies in Venezuela, um, trying to um, oust uh, Nicolas Maduro, the still leader of Venezuela. He also becomes the special representative of Iran or for Iran policy. Um, but even before Trump, he had um, served for four years in the Bush administration as a deputy national security advisor after sort of a long hiatus out of government between the Reagan years and then coming back in during the uh, second term for uh, for George W. Bush. So he's a, he has this very long career 
um, as a prominent neoconservative voice in Republican foreign policy and, and has this very clearly going back to you know, his early days as a, as a young foreign policy official um, in the Reagan administration has this um, very clear interest and obsession with um, this idea of advancing you know, a very certain kind of, of human rights or democracy promotion around the world, but of course, very, very along the lines of this very sort of narrow vision. I also think it's worth pointing out, just as maybe even a fun fact, that he's the cousin of, uh, of Floyd Abrams, a very prominent um, First Amendment constitutional lawyer in the United States who um, had argued for the New York Times in the Pentagon Papers case, so um, quite a prominent uh, political family. Um, yeah, once you get into the neocons, there's a lot of uh, family relations, actually, if, yeah. you, if you're moving down that road. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. It's interesting, too, that a lot of them, um, I'm always interested in this, um, as sort of from a cultural standpoint, about how a lot of them you know, were born into quite left-leaning Jewish families. Their parents or grandparents, usually their parents, had been Jewish immigrants. They grew up in Brooklyn. Um, or in other parts of New York City, but usually Brooklyn. Um, and they, they grew up in sort of these left-leaning households, um, gone to um, progressive schools, you know, espoused progressive social causes or, or left-leaning social causes. I mean, in, in the Ellie Abrams case, he went to uh, the Little Red School House in New York, which is like considered the first progressive um, school in, in New York City. Um, and, uh, you know, it was really notable for having a lot of alumni who are um, prominent left-wing activists and, and artists, um, people like Angela Davis, for example. Um, so it's it's really interesting how there's sort of a broader shift um, within within this group. Paul Wolfowitz is another one who um, who has a, a prominent role in foreign policy later, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who then becomes you know these these very right-wing foreign policy guys. Um, it's it's a very it's a very interesting cultural shift um, in how many I mean the the crystals of course you know um, are another uh, you know father son pair who are, who are experiencing similar things as well. Yeah, there's a great book on that by Justine Weiss on neoconservatism where he sort of basically divides them into to three generations right and sort of traces this shift from as you'd say uh, left leaning environments in New York uh, and then through the second generation of the so-called like Henry Scoop Jackson Democrats, right, which Ed Abrams is one of the earliest members, and then into the third generation, which is the one that most listeners are probably familiar with, the sort of neocons of the Bush era. Uh, and you sort of trace that movement collectively and individually from the progressive, if not even socialist, left uh, to the neoconservative right, both on cultural yeah, it, issues and on foreign policy issues. It's very interesting. Uh, it, yeah, it is very interesting. It, it, it's also really interesting. Um, I mean, it's getting away from the book a little bit, but I mean, it does sort of play into the, the broader transformation because it is really interesting how um, uh, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of these guys are, 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 are Jews and, you know, it's not very common in the, in the American political context for, for Jews to, be right-leaning on anything. I mean, I think like three seventy-five percent of American Jews are you know members of the Democratic Party, or you know consider themselves liberals or progressives. You know, identify with with left-leaning causes. So, but you do have this like quarter, um, you know, very roughly using percentages here. This quarter of Jews who are who are considered 
right wing. A lot of them are very religious Orthodox or Hasidic Jews, but then you do have, you know, this other group, like the neo the neoconservatives are not particularly religious figures. Um, but oh, they quite, do sort quite of the contrary, you could say. I mean, a lot of them are, are non-religious, right? Right. Right. You know, like they're they're very, you know, they could be atheists, you know, you know, Jews or, you know, quite secular, but but sort of still partake in sort of this more rightward shift in American, you know, cultural views happening in, in the 1970s, sort of these, uh, you know, this conservative reaction to the, um, you know, the civil rights revolution, the sexual revolution, um, women's liberation. And uh, it, it is very interesting because that's not who you would initially pin as, as a group of people who would sort of be reacting to that in the same way as sort of more, conservative whites, um, especially because Jews had sort of been an out group um, and only just becoming part of like the in group of the American elite in this period. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating. Um, uh, and I, I'm very interested in this. Um, but uh, anyway, don't want to get too far from the book. Um, <laughs> so going, going back to the book, I was wondering if you could sort of talk about how the specific ways, you know, sort of moving further into the Reagan administration now, you know, um, maybe we can start talking about some of the case studies like Nicaragua, for example. What are some of the specific ways that um, Congress is starting to exert pressure on the Reagan administration to incorporate a greater concern for for human rights into its foreign policy, which then results in the administration, um, as you say, sort of redefining human rights into sort of a more conservative anti-communist ideology? Well, Congress, of course, famously has limited powers when it comes to foreign policy, right? That's the conventional understanding. And it is, of course, correct that Congress really has more sort of power when it comes to domestic issues and the power of the person, etc., and limited when it comes to foreign policy uh, decisions. And increasingly so, of course, up through the 20th century and nuclear weapons, etc., and sort of a con concentration of of executive branch power in, in terms of foreign relations. Um, but but Congress still has some ways of asserting influence, of course, and it's some of the stuff that I, I spend a bit of time on in the book, trying to sort of reintegrate Congress as an institution and individuals as well into the narrative of American foreign policy and see when they play a role. And first, I think the most important thing is to say that Congress, of course, does rarely get to dictate foreign policy, although there are a couple of cases in my book that we can get back to. But when Congress asserts influence on foreign policy, it is mostly in sort of extracting concessions from the executive branch or sort of sort of setting the parameters for the sort of space that the executive branch has to maneuver within uh, often in close coordination with civil society and public opinion in general. So basically, Congress can try and set the agenda and shape the environment so that certain actions from the president becomes politically uh, unfeasible or at least very problematic and, and costly. So that's really where it is. And sort of being more concrete, uh, of course, as I mentioned, the, the rejection of Reagan's nominee to head the Human Rights Bureau in the summer of 1981 was a first example of where Congress sort of asserted its will. Um, and just to note quickly there, an interesting fact is that, as you mentioned initially, the Republicans, of course, took control of the Senate in the 1980 election 
and therefore also had a majority on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which were to uh, you know, take a decision on Reagan's nominee. And so it was a Republican-led Senate Foreign Relations Committee that decided to reject Reagan's nominee. So that just to note that it was, to some extent, a bipartisan consensus on at least human rights featuring in U.S. foreign policy, because the rejection of Reagan's nominee in 81 was largely based on that nominee's views on human rights, which was viewed as being uh, insufficient or, or, or wrong, essentially. So, so there was that sort of bipartisan insistence that human rights should at least feature in one way or another. And so nominees is one way. I mean, we see that today as well, the Biden administration, where the Senate is holding up a lot of the nominees uh, there as well. So, so, so nominations of certain cabinet members, ambassadors, etc., is one way that Congress can sort of assert its will on, on, on the presidency and sort of obstruct foreign policy. Another, of course, is legislation. And maybe here it makes sense to turn to one of the case studies in the book. Uh, the one on South Africa is, is maybe the more prominent example where we see a coalition of members of Congress. It starts out predominantly being the Congressional Black Caucus, but with uh, sort of a, a coalition of that and and uh, liberal Democrats, also several American Jews in Congress, uh, and increasingly also moderate Republicans. And they sort of come together on this sort of responding in part to popular opinion and the massive anti-apartheid uh, demonstrations across the U.S. as we move into the mid-'80s. And they come together and sort of insist that the Reagan administration's policy towards South Africa is not working. Uh, so-called constructive engagement, where the administration is really prioritizing good relations with the uh, South African regime and are not willing to push for reform and abolition of the apartheid regime. Uh, Congress comes together to reject that. And what they do is they pass legislation that impose economic sanctions on South Africa. So here again, Congress has a tool. They can impose economic sanctions and thereby derail the president's foreign policy. And that's what they do. And Reagan even puts down his veto to sort of veto the legislation. And it's overridden by Congress, again, with bipartisan support. So there's a good example of where Congress, on human rights grounds, I should say, right, like articulating critique of apartheid uh, in terms of racism, of course, but also in terms of human rights and how it's undemocratic and manages then to level economic sanctions and through legislation as a tool for which to change the course of uh, U.S. foreign policy towards South Africa. So what's the, what's the Reagan administration you know, reaction to all this? I mean, sort of as we've sort of alluded to, I think several times now, um, they, they sort of reformulate um, and, and redefine human rights as sort of being a, an anti-communist ideology. How, how do they do that? And, and, and what does that actually look like in practice once the Reagan administration sort of retools that for their own political and ideological purposes? Well, one way they do it in practice is that instead of, you know, initially Reagan wanted to simply uh, remove the Human Rights Bureau at the State Department, right? And then when he couldn't do that, he wanted to appoint a nominee that didn't care for human rights. And when he couldn't do that, he ended up with Elliot Abrams. And then Elliot Abrams takes human rights and tries to to redefine it. So it's it's both in the sort of 
the reports, etc., that the executive branch have to submit uh, to Congress on human rights concerns. There, they sort of rhetorically try to redefine what human rights are and sort of tie human rights more closely to democracy. Uh, so they try and merge those those two uh, concepts. They also, of course, with uh, congressional support, though, uh, establishes what is known as the National Endowment for Democracy in 1983, uh, which becomes this non-state, although government-funded agency to support democracy around the world. That's a sort of key element of the Reagan administration's uh, sort of more proactive human rights policy is to conceptualize, sort of saying that, you know, in order to have respect for human rights, we need to have democratic regimes, and therefore the U.S. should seek to support democratization of these regimes uh, and these allied regimes primarily. Um, Reagan embraces it rhetorically as well. Uh, I mean, the most famous speech, of course, is uh, at Westminster uh, in the U.K. in September 1982, where he calls for the establishment of what he calls the infrastructure of democracy and sort of really sort of embraces human rights and democracy as an ideological uh, language and and also in practical terms, a a way to sort of push back against communism, that just like the communists are supporting uh, communist insurgents and are sort of pushing for a, 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 you know, world communism, the U.S. needs to push for world democracy and needs to support these uh, opposition groups and uh, even guerrilla groups, as is the case in Nicaragua, uh, that are fighting communism. So the U.S. becomes involved in a sort of global agenda to push back on communism by, insist- by insisting on promoting democracy and human rights instead. So that's where human rights features into to practical policy. It becomes part of this sort of selective democracy promotion agenda, which is heavily sort of shaped by by for fighting communism. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And so going into some of the case studies, we were just talking about South Africa. I mean, how does this sort of play out in in Nicaragua? I mean, can you give us sort of an overview of um, what's going on here? What are the what's the administration views on it? How is Congress responding and and sort of what's playing out? Uh, I'm sure there are going to be many folks who are not familiar at all 
with what's happening in Nicaragua and Latin America more broadly in the 1980s. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it'd be great to dig into that. Well, the starting point should be that the Reagan administration, I believe it was Kirkpatrick, right, saying that Central America is the most important region in the world, uh, which maybe you know, given the Cold War in the 80s and the significance of Europe, maybe it doesn't make sort of intuitively sense to most people. You would think that it would be like Berlin and Germany and the Euro- European theater of war that would be sort of the key key region, but. To the Reagan administration uh, and to the neoconservatives, Central America is crucial. And that's because it's at the center of this sort of American-Soviet contest over who gets to dictate and shape uh, what we would today would refer to as the global south, right? Uh, and Nicaragua is the focal point of this battle because... In 1979, the U.S.-friendly regime there in Nicaragua is overthrown. And what happens is that there is a a leftist coalition of so-called Sandinistas that take over in Nicaragua, and they develop contacts with the Soviet Union and Cuba. And they, well, one thing is their actual actions, where they they do support insurgents in, in neighboring countries as well. And the Reagan administration is very concerned that Nicaragua will emerge as sort of a second Cuba that will be sort of exporting a communist revolution to the region. And of course, Nicaragua is relatively close to the American border as well, uh, relative spe- relatively speaking. So, so there's a concern for that sort of a communist state close to, to the United States. But it's just as much, um, you could say, the symbolism of this uh, regime there that is is sort of uh, non-friendly to the U.S. and and sort of tries to promote a, a more sort of socialist regime. Um, so so what happens is, of course, that you know the Reagan administration tries to, in various ways, overthrow the Sandinistas, um, and that develops into sort of a, a sort of covert operations against the Sandinistas uh, through support for the anti-Sandinista guerrillas known as the Contras, the Contra revolutionaries. Um, this is the whole thing that leads into the Iran-Contra affair as well later on, but but just for, for our purposes here, it's just to say that the administration supports the Contras and seeks to overthrow the Sandinista regime. Uh, and it picks up human rights languages there as well. It, it sort of frames its support for the Contras and its criticism of the Sandinista regime uh, in human rights languages and points out to the extent to which the Sandinistas violate human rights and close down uh, independent press, etc. in in the country, in in Nicaragua. And Congress, conversely, wants to prevent U.S. involvement in, uh, in Nicaragua and generally are sort of concerned with it maybe developing into a new Vietnam and generally does not want too much American interventionism uh, in in Central America, at least if you're a liberal Democrat. And so Nicaragua becomes this the center of what I call a, a sort of public diplomacy war, where liberal Democrats in Congress seeks to do whatever they can to keep the United States out of the country and to prevent military intervention. And Reagan, on the other hand, seeks to overthrow the Sandinista regimes. And human rights becomes a language there for both sides to to sort of point out the, the shortcomings of the the opponents in the region. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk a little bit more about why Congress is, or why members of Congress are opposed to 
American sort of escalating American involvement in Central America because, you know, on the flip side, you know, there are longstanding concerns. I'm, I'm going back, uh, you know, a century and over a century and a half about trying to keep, uh, for, you know, foreign powers outside out of the Western Hemisphere, right, going all the way back to the Monroe Doctrine. So why do some members of Congress put these concerns aside and, you know, instead, um, uh, you know, try and limit the Reagan administration's ability to to act in Central America? Well, as, as I mentioned briefly, to some Democrats especially, there is this fear of, a, of, of, a, of another Vietnam, that, that a gradual escalation, increasing U.S. involvement will suddenly lead to this quagmire where the U.S. will be militarily involved fighting counterinsurgency warfare against these guerrilla groups. Uh, so that's certainly one. But there is, of course, also in the U.S. a, a rather significant peace movement uh, that is tied especially to, to uh, Central America. So, so there are various constituencies in, in the U.S. who are concerned with American militarism in the region uh, and who would like a diplomatic uh, relationship, like with focus on foreign aid and diplomatic relations rather than military interventions. So, I mean, of course, America has a, the United States has a long history of military interventions in Latin America. And, and, and for many uh, Americans at the time in the 80s, this was something they wanted to break with. It's essentially the core of uh, Jimmy Carter's human rights policy was to, to end this sort of military interventionism in Latin America in favor of better relations and respect for the national sovereignty of these countries. Right, you know, which also has... Um, uh continuity in the history of American foreign policy, right? Thinking about the Roosevelt good neighbor policy, which had its origins in the way that uh, Herbert Hoover had started thinking about Latin America as well and trying to repair inter-American relations. So you sort of have these two, you know, cross-cutting parallels sort of moving through, at least in my view, in, in both the how American policymakers are, are viewing this region. Uh, not only say- in the cold just a, a brief uh, to add to that, uh, it's interesting how in the case of uh, South Africa, several moderate Republicans, even some conservative Republicans, sort of switched sides, you could say, and joined the Democrats and the liberal side in rejecting the Reagan administration's anti-communist policy and instead pushing for a greater respect for human rights and and, and, and that in, in, in American relations with South Africa. And that doesn't happen in Nicaragua to the same extent. Um, in Nicaragua, it's very sort of divided along liberals on one side, conservatives on the other. And that's one of the reasons why Congress is, at the end of the day, not successful in enforcing the Reagan administration's hand on Nicaragua. Of course, they do manage to implement the Boland amendments and, and sort of restrict the Reagan's ability to, to to supply the contrast with military aid, which is exactly what leads the administration to then uh, go down the Iran Contra route, where they, you know, sell um, military equipment and then use the, the proceeds from that to fund um, the, the, the the Contras, right? So so, but but there is there is a um, there's not the same convergence across the center of American foreign policy when it comes to Nicaragua, probably in part because the region is considered more essential to U.S. national security interests than, than South Africa. But I also think because um, with South Africa, there is really a, a broad-based coalition, like 
people in the streets, uh, university campuses, etc., local uh, mayors, city councils, uh, businesses, all taking a stand against uh, the South African regime and U.S. support for it. And of course, it's also framed in America's uh, history with um, racism and, and, and of course, slavery and segregation, etc. So there is just it resonates more in that case, and therefore Congress is successful in the South Africa case in forcing the Reagan administration to shift gears, whereas in Nicaragua, it's less so. And then, of course, Reagan circumvents Congress by simply ignoring congressional legislation and moving down the, the path to, to the Iran-Contra affair. It, it is really, I think, striking how in the South Africa case, you have basically overwhelming opposition to the Reagan administration policy of constructive engagement, and yet they decide to still pursue it anyway. And I mean, what's the thinking behind that? I mean, it just, it just, I think politically speaking, just seems illogical to pursue something in the face of overwhelming opposition from basically all corners of American society, and also more broadly from the international community. I mean, Reagan administration is one of the only countries, or excuse me, Reagan administration is not a country. The Reagan administration has the United States being the only one of the only countries which has full diplomatic relations with with South Africa in this period, and you know, is is giving a lot of cover to the apartheid regime in South Africa to sort of keep pursuing apartheid. I mean, obviously that's going to change um, by the end of the eighties, but um, which I think is also um, something that's back in the news because you know F.W. de Klerk just died a couple of weeks ago, last apartheid leader of South Africa. For our, our listeners who aren't familiar with him, um, but what what is the thinking behind that? I mean, I can definitely see why they were ultimately forced to change gears, but why are they so insistent upon it up until that point? No, it's an it's an interesting question, and and just yeah, as you mentioned, just for context, right? I mean. Most European countries, certainly the UK and the Scandinavians and, and several other Western European countries, uh, are much uh, quicker to uh, impose uh, you know, in the, the disinvestment and later on sanctions, etc., to move against the regime in South Africa, whereas uh, Reagan really is Reagan's really dragging his feet here, right? Um, well, I think to understand why uh, part of it is is personal. Uh, that's something I've definitely come to to appreciate uh, and do research in the book. Reagan places a great deal of emphasis on the personal relationships. We see that, of course, with Gorbachev and, and the sort of uh, the Cold War relations in, in a positive sense, but that also applies to his relationships with, um, you could say, allies who have pretty uh, terrible human rights records, like like the, the regime in, in South Africa. Um, he he's he's um, He's reluctant to give up of uh, on his friends, so to say, right? So, so if he has embarked on a policy towards a country based on a certain understanding with the leaders there, in this case, and as always in the case, uh, sort of informed by sort of shared anti-communism, then he's very reluctant to move away from that. And we see that when the U.S. changes its policy towards some of its uh, authoritarian allies. It is actually often George Schultz and others who who push for that. That's I would say in the case of the Philippines and South Korea, etc., and and some Latin American countries as well. Uh, of course, the situation on the ground is is the, the main driving force in those cases, and and and, and like the actual move towards democratization on the ground, and then the administration can get behind that. But for South Africa, 
that doesn't really happen. Uh, and I think it is, you know, we have to understand that, as I said before, the anti-communism uh, agenda really is the primary framework through which the administration views its foreign policy. I interviewed Chester Croker, who was the assistant secretary for, for Africa during the Reagan administration. It's really his policy, the constructive engagement. And those in the administration, uh, further to the right, the hardliners, who would prefer an even stronger and more unconditional support for the administration there. So there's some internal debate as well in the administration. But at the end of the day, uh, even the sort of more moderate forces in the administration are not willing to move because, uh, on South Africa because they are concerned that the ANC, they believe, has has communist uh, contacts. So they're concerned that if the white minority regime is ousted in South Africa, uh, that then the country will turn towards communism. It is a real concern for the administration. They're also concerned with what that may mean for the broader region of, of Southern uh, Africa. Um, South Africa is the most important U.S. ally in that region, and they're concerned with the ripple effects of a potential communist uh, South Africa. Uh, as um, improbable as that may sound from the vantage point of today, I do think we have to understand from at the time, this sort of fear of a turn to communism is really profound in the administration. And there is, I guess you could say there's also an element here of, of path dependency where you consistently on the side of the white minority regime. And you realize that uh, the broader public in South Africa does not view you very favorably. And so the longer you stick with the regime, the worse the consequence of switching to the other side, you could say. Uh, so so there, there may be, I think, also a little bit stuck in in their sort of reluctance, their persistence uh, to, to, stay with the admin, to with, stay with the apartheid regime and, and not move. Well, that that's something I was going to bring up as well. Where you know you talk about sort of the the very prevalent fears of you know communism, the spread of communism in the region, which is a concern, right? That's animating pretty much every American administration from from Truman until until Reagan, right? Throughout the entire Cold War, is that these, um, which you know, in a vast majority of cases, if not all cases, are extremely overblown and completely ignore the dynamics of you know regional politics wherever they may be, and also is a complete sort of misunderstanding of the international communist movement or the lack thereof, I think maybe is a better way to put it, um, especially after the Sino-Soviet split and sort of inter-communist uh, competition. I mean, Americans were familiar with sort of the broad parameters, right, of this, like, you know, senior administration officials across, you know, across presidential administrations, but their sort of inability to translate was, you know, pretty broad understanding. Like they knew about the Sino-Soviet split, right? Like they had a pretty good firm understanding of that, which is what helped lay the groundwork for Nixon going to China. But um, there are sort of in a lot of other cases, the, the inability to translate that into actual sort of policy shifts is I think quite profound. I mean, I guess in this, in the Southern Africa region, I mean, you had the concerns about, you know, what's going on in Angola, um, you know, spilling over into a place like South Africa, right? Like, you know, with the Soviets and the Cubans really involved in that civil war. But, you know, I mean, it's basically just sort of a reincarnation in, in some ways to some extent of, you know, the domino theory, which, um, you know, had been, you know, pretty, pretty doubtful from the start. Um, um, but 
uh, certainly had animated, uh, you know, American policy in, in Southeast Asia. And yes, after Vietnam falls, you also have Laos and Cambodia, but that's only that's it, right? And that was very specific regional context, which is just not um, replicated in uh, in a vast majority of other of other regions, which is oh, just always something that really fascinates me. You're exactly right to point out. I mean, Angola is, of course, the the the, the key case here, right? In terms of informing the sort of broader approach to to the region of the administration right and so i mean you could see if if you have that mindset of of like thinking in terms of domino theory and believing in in, in, in sort of you sort of the, the the prospect of of world communism i mean the the, the fact that the the cubans were active to the extent they were in uh, in angola it it, uh, it that really informs the administration's approach to sort of we got to stick with the South Africans, because we're worried about what might happen for the entire region if we don't have a strong ally uh, there. Right. And, and talking about sort of the, the final big case study in the book, the Soviet Jewry, I mean, of course, this goes beyond the Reagan administration, as we talked about earlier. I mean, mm-hmm. these are concerns that are being raised, um, not only in the 70s, but, but even in the late 60s as well. So, you know, I was wondering if you could sort of talk a little bit about why or not why, but how, what, what are sort of the confines of, of this case study um, within the, the context of, of the 1980s and the Reagan administration and, and how the administration and Congress are approaching this issue of uh, you know, Soviet emigration out of the Soviet Union, or um, Jewish emigration out of the Soviet Union, rather. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the other cases and what we've been speaking about so far really revolves around uh, conflict, right? And the, the, this case is, is a good example of, you know, members of Congress and the Reagan administration were able to sort of compartmentalize their positions on these issues, right? You you had strong disagreements and conflict over U.S. human rights policy towards South Africa, Nicaragua, and elsewhere. But you also were able to, at the same time, to have relatively constructive uh, collaboration on issues where views on the left and the right more or less aligned. And not surprisingly, I mean, Soviet Jewish immigration, like a, a religious minority uh, persecuted uh, in the Soviet Union, it's it's an, an issue that's not hard to get behind from liberals as well as conservatives. Uh, and then, as you said as well, it's been a long-standing issue by the time Reagan uh, enters into office. Uh, and there is a, a precedent of American concern for uh, Jews in the Soviet Union and Congress is already active through the Jackson-Vanik Amendment uh, by, by by Henry Scoop Jackson, as we talked about earlier. Uh, and what really happens here, now, what I find the most interesting about this case uh, is that there are some minor strategic disagreements. Uh, members of Congress, some of them would like to have stronger public criticism of the Soviet Union uh, earlier on and they would like to see sort of more formalized linkage between you know collaboration on economic matters and 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 those issues uh, along with sort of progress on migration so basically sort of not not opening up uh, for trade and not discussing security matters unless the soviets would come along with uh, migration and human rights issues but that aside the the main thing here which is really interesting is that here we see an example where I think uh, democracies have an advantage, right? Where you see that because of the sort of the fact that there are two branches of government operating here in the U.S., Reagan was able to use congressional concern for for Soviet Jews as leverage against Gorbachev, right? So, so Reagan would say, you know, 
I, I hear you. I hear you. I, I have. I mean, Reagan, of course, was deeply involved uh, and deeply concerned about uh, Soviet Jews, but he also wanted to move ahead with uh, security matters, right, uh, and, and other issues, and improve the overall relationship with, with the Soviets once Gorbachev enters his office. But he kept, in his talks with Gorbachev, kept coming back to congressional concerns for Jewish migration and saying, you know, I cannot, you know, move ahead with um, arms reductions, etc., uh, unless you give me something here on, on Soviet Jews and human rights issues, because then the Senate won't ratify uh, the treaty. And so those issues are effectively linked. And, and Gorbachev would uh, like brush this off and be upset and say that it's not what it is. And But, but Reagan really managed to sort of use congressional concerns for human rights and Soviet Jewish migration to sort of leverage uh, that against Gorbachev and, and say, you know, you can't have improved relations. We can't have uh, arms reductions and all that unless you give us something here, unless you let people migrate, uh, unless you start treating your religious minorities and ethnic minorities better. Um, so, so there's a success story, I think, uh, in where you see that those two branches of government in the U.S. are actually able to sort of both complement each other, but also strengthen each other. Right. And how does, you know, as Reagan's, you know, pursues, you know, a, a broader um, yeah, resetting of the Soviet-American relationship, sort of moving forward his own version of, of detente and trying to sort of ratchet down the Cold War, especially in the, his second term as president, you know, how, how does he justify working with the Soviets on these issues when, you know, how does he square that rather with his earlier, you know, comments and critiques and attacks on, on the Soviet Union and what he calls the Soviet Empire? I mean, there's that, there's that um, exchange he has when he visits Moscow in 1988, right? It's sort of the, the closing days of his presidency. Um, and a reporter asks him this very question. He just says that, you know, that was a, a different Soviet Union. It was a Soviet Union of a different time. Obviously, it was pre-Gorbachev. This was, he's making the, like, for example, evil empire speeches when Andropov um, is the uh, Soviet leader. Um, and sort of he swats it away with that. But, you know, is there sort of a broader, uh, you know, um, defense of his, you know, engagement with the Soviet Union, especially in light of their, you know, continue what, and especially what Reagan's called continuing human rights abuses. Yeah, I was going to bring up that same anecdote, right? Where he said, like, the evil empire. <laughs> yeah. when, when, when you're starting your question, right? The evil empire, that was that was then, right? I mean, that's like he, he moves beyond that. Um, largely, of course, because of his relations with Gorbachev. Um, well, I, I don't know. I am not, I'm not sure how to answer the question, actually. But I, I, I would say that, um, I mean... Reagan is really a fascinating character, of course, in that sense, right? Because he manages to often have, you could say, what what you could call contradicting uh, impulses at the same time in him, right? Like, so he, on the one hand, the sort of from the very beginning of his policy towards the Soviet Union, even before Gorbachev, right, sending out uh, letters to his Soviet counterparts trying to open up dialogue while at the same time blasting them as the evil empire, etc. Right? So there was always this duality in his approach to the Soviets of wanting engagement and at the same time uh, vilifying them in, in public, right? Um, so, so it's already there, like it's, it's always there, the sort of the, the duality in his approach. And, and I think sort of the best way of understanding like how he 
how he sort of squares his changes that he, he really sort of profoundly just believes and, and articulates this view that the Soviets have changed with Gorbachev and that they are no longer the evil empire. And uh, you can sort of move beyond that sort of ideological confrontation towards actually getting real results on arms reductions and lowering of tensions, etc. Um, there is this development. Of course, there's also his, his long-standing sort of um, flirtation with uh, like no nuclear weapons, right? Like, uh, I mean, he has this, there's this sort of pacifist component to him as well all along. Uh, this moves away from the human rights stuff, but it is sort of, there are some, Reagan is unconventional in that way. I mean, he also, of course, famously from the beginning rejects uh, the sort of theory of mutually assured destruction. He sees like as profoundly misguided and dangerous. So so he, he just approaches the Soviet Union differently in many ways than, than some of his predecessors do. But in terms of human rights, I mean, he's not backing down. He continues to 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 sort of take a strong stance on, on human rights issues in the Soviet Union. And here, of course, it's important to note that I mean, when you have that ideological confrontation, of course, once people want to leave the Soviet Union, I mean, that is a, a public relations victory for the United States and for Reagan because it confirms his sort of bedrock beliefs that communism is inferior to capitalism and that people, when given a choice, would prefer to move to a democratic capitalist society. So so, so that's, that's sort of the... The, the, the public relations or the international um, um, sort of the, the significance of, of that issue, right? Uh, and then, of course, he, 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 he's also willing to compromise. Uh, he's pragmatic in his approach. He sort of accepts that he will tone down the critique and not sort of gloat in victory when Gorbachev allows people to migrate, that he will sort of accept tangible concrete results in the form of people leaving and then not push it as a public relations uh, victory and not sort of uh, attack them. So he's also sort of giving Gorbachev a way out. So it's basically to sort of like go easy on him when he complies with American demands for, for letting people migrate. Mm. Moving beyond the 1980s, how, how did sort of the executive legislative contests over human rights and sort of the broader direction of, of foreign policy in this decade. How, how, what are the legacies of those conflicts? Um, not only thinking about how human rights um, uh, plays a role in American foreign policy beyond the Cold War or the end of the Cold War, but um, also within sort of broader executive legislation, legislative relations um, and tussling over the direction of, of U.S. foreign relations and, and national security policy? Well, I mean, the legacies, I mean, I would say in terms of American foreign policy, not necessarily human rights, but on foreign policy, then then it is, um, there, there was, it, I think I want to answer it differently if, if that's okay with you. I would say that what, what comes out of, the 80s what comes out of this uh sort of tussle between the two branches is, is um is that there is continued contestation right over human rights in specific cases like if you look at the specific country or if you look at specific you know the role of we haven't even talked about the united nations but of like multilateral institutions and and, and human rights and those and there's a lot of 
disagreement uh, from the left and the right there. But there is also the emergence of this bipartisan consensus that really comes into force in the 90s, right? And that, that's to a large extent a result of the Reagan administration's conservative human rights policy, where they, they sort of merge human rights with democracy promotion, but also free markets and sort of the Washington consensus and economic policies uh, that really comes to dominate in the 90s that someone like Bill Clinton really is uh, is really is an extension of, I believe. Um, that's a, that's an important legacy uh, in terms of what U.S. foreign policy looks like, right? That that this um, the fact that Reagan did not go down the road of simply rejecting human rights and crafting a human rights, uh, sorry, foreign policy that maybe adopted other uh, moral concepts or another language of expressing morality, but stuck with the human rights thing. That I think has profoundly shaped sort of the consensus, the bipartisan sort of uh, centrist consensus in American foreign policy into the 90s on sort of tying human rights, democracy and and free markets closely to each other. Then, of course, there's the broader thing about sort of how human rights are are completely, uh, I guess, a a very malleable, flexible concept, right? Uh, We see subsequent, subsequent administrations, both Clinton, but certainly also beyond, sort of tweaking their human rights policy to fit their existing foreign policy agendas, right? There's a consistent neglect of economic, social, and cultural rights, but there are certainly um, tweaks as to uh, the relationship between human rights and American uh, use of force, for instance, right? Which is humanitarian interventions during the Clinton era. And then, of course, the whole sort of attempt to democratize the Middle East during the Bush administration. There are certainly differences, but there are also continuities across uh, administrations. That, that was sort of going to go into my final question to you, is that what are sort of the through lines or continuities that you see as a result of the you know, Reagan reformulation of the way that uh, the U.S. should view uh, human rights is, you know, how how has that impacted how successive administrations um, have have tried to uh, incorporate human rights concerns into foreign policy? Because in the you know current political moment that we're in, in the end of 2021 here, I mean, you're um, at least in, on some issues like with China um, and U.S.-China relations, you know, human rights is consistently brought up. Um, I think it's still in a pretty narrow way. Um, sort of speaking to a lot of the issues that we've talked about today, but um, you do hear it brought up again, at least rhetorically, um, you know, quite, quite consistently and, you know, successive presidents have, have sort of cited it as a reason to do or to not to do something, especially not only with, with adversaries, but also in, in trying to cajole allies into um, taking actions that uh, the Americans want them to. Yeah, I mean, human rights is, uh, I would argue, uh, pivotal to understanding the the Biden administration's foreign policy, right? I mean, even during the Trump administration, there was an attempt to redefine human rights with Mike Pompeo's commission. And so even in an administration that doesn't necessarily put a great deal of emphasis on human rights, there is still an engagement with the concept and an attempt to redefine it towards their sort of own objectives, even in the Trump era. But but with Biden, the the continuity with, with Reagan is actually quite striking, I would argue. I mean, especially when dealing with adversaries, right? So just like Reagan's sort of anti-communist human rights policy with the Soviets, Biden clearly has sort of 
embraced human rights and democracy, right? Those two together as sort of the core ideological program, you could say, in his sort of attempt to rally countries against uh, China, right? And it's not, it's beyond China. It's a broader sort of democracy versus autocracy uh, framework, of course, that the administration are really sort of uh, repeating time and time again. Um, so on the one hand, it's an interesting sort of connection between human rights and democracy that I would argue is really something that we see uh, not so much uh, in the 70s and not so much under Carter, but we see it under under Reagan. And that has really stuck. Uh, and we see it with Biden, right? The sort of merger of human rights and democracy is basically sometimes being articulated as two things of the same thing, although not necessarily that. Uh, I mean, there are certainly differences there, right? But they're really being invoked together as the center, the core of the moral component of American foreign policy, and certainly uh, in relations with adversaries, right? I mean, human rights and democracy are presented as the positive uh, component of Biden's vision for 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 the twenty first century, right? I mean, it's 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 not a you could have chosen to engage China on on much less uh, ideological grounds, right? And you could have focused on no, but like security issues, economic, etc. And it's sort of um, it's you could have gone down that road, right? Uh, but Biden really is doubling down on the sort of democracy, human rights uh, framework as a way of yeah, articulating what he seeks to achieve for the United States in the 21st century, but certainly also as the reason why other countries should band together with the United States against uh, countries like right. China, right? Hey, you know, yeah, he, <laughs> you know, the Biden administration insists that they're, you know, not trying to, create some sort of new Cold War framework for discussing the U.S.-China relationship, but then at the same time are constantly, as you, I think, rightfully have said, constantly talk about it in sort of this very binary, black and white, bipolar way of democracies versus autocracies. And But then at the same time insist that, you know, they're not trying to wage some sort of second Cold War or just a Cold War in general. And I just find that the rhetorical dance that they do around that is is absolutely fascinating. If I can just briefly interject here, I would say, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Russians and the Chinese are not having any of it, right? I mean, they recently published this, the op-ed, right, by the Chinese and the Russian ambassador to the United States, where they basically, instead of sort of countering and saying, you know, we don't want any part of your democracy and your summit for democracy, et cetera. They basically make the case for why Russia and China are democracies, right? And that's a very interesting sort of, uh, very sort of mental gymnastics that they're performing there in order to do that. But it's very interesting to see that this sort of human rights and democracy as a language of morality and sort of a framework for expressing the positive vision around your own country and your role in the world. It's not just in America that's taken root, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's extending all the way to the sort of some of the least democratic countries in the world. Um, but they certainly don't accept the premise that Joe Biden is not dividing the world along ideological lines and that he's not sort of re-engaging in a cold war. Quite the contrary, that's their exact sort of reading of what's happening with Biden's democracy agenda, that it is, from their perspective, a sort of reintroduction of this sort of ideological Cold War framework. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think that's a that's a great point to uh, to conclude and, and leave it there. So um, thank you very much, Rasmus, for, for joining me today. I um, really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, the book is Reagan, Congress, and Human Rights, Contesting Morality in U.S. Foreign Policy, and that was published with Cambridge University Press uh, in the spring of 2020. Rasmus, thank you so much.
Thank you so much, Grant, for excellent questions. I really enjoyed discussing my book with you. Excellent. Um, Well, thank you all again for listening, um, and we'll be back soon, um, probably after the holidays. So uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah. Um, Enjoy the holiday season with your families as much as you can um, during the ongoing pandemic, um, and we will see you again soon. Bye-bye. today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.